So today we're going to be adding question number six uh, as it regards um, our look at what is the Bible and discussing different things in regards to the Bible. So we're going to begin by reviewing the questions and answers and the verses that we followed, that we looked at up until now. And then uh, we're going to spend some time discussing, uh, I think, a very relevant topic for us uh, as we consider the importance of God's Word, uh, particularly in the world in which we live today, which I think could be described as a post-truth world. And we'll maybe have a little bit of time for discussion and, and talk about that. So, question one was, what is the Bible? And the Bible is the only inspired, written Word of God above all other books in wisdom, power, and authority. And our passage for that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. And then we saw question two, well, how can we know that the Bible really is the true word of God? So we're saying it is the word of God. Well, well, prove it to me. And how do we prove it? Well, we don't prove it. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in the second answer. The Spirit of God helps us know that the Bible is true, and that it is the Word of God. And Paul makes this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. We have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. For what purpose? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we, we made the, the distinction, or made, made the point that our understanding or um, our our con- our conviction that the Bible is the Word of God is something that we've come to by the work of the Holy Spirit. And anyone else is, the only way anyone else is going to come to that same conviction is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, we know what God's Word is. We know how we know that it's God's Word. So how did God give us the Bible? And the answer is God used men. He inspired Men And we talked about that word inspire and how it comes from the idea of spiration and, and sort of breathing. And of course, the, the word um, in First Timothy that, or Second Timothy that discusses the, uh, the doctrine of inspiration says all Scripture is breathed out by God. And so what it means then is God used human instruments to provide His word so that it was truly His word. And so the answer is God inspired holy men I keep forgetting to put that T in front of the O. To, not O right, to write down his words exactly as he wanted. We see that in 2 Peter 1.21. Was any prophecy ever produced by the will of man? No. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. One of the things we see is, is an essential aspect of our understanding of, of God's Word and the truthfulness of God's Word is a dependence on the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who convinces us that the Bible is God's Word. The Spirit is also the one who produced God's Word. So the Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So the Spirit is God, fully God. So the next question is, well, is it possible for the Bible then to have any errors or lies? And the answer is no. God's word is true and without error because, and here's the, here's the reason why we believe in what we call inerrancy, because does God ever lie? 
Is it even possible for God to lie? No, God cannot lie. And so God's word is true and without error because God tells only the truth. If we begin to allow error, if we begin to allow issues in God's word, it is an affront, it is an attack against the very character of God. And the psalmist brings this up. The sum or all of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So we understand the necessity of the word, how we know the word, the truthfulness of the word. So we looked at um, last time we discussed this was, well, what does the Bible teach us? And the Bible is that which teaches us what God wants to believe about him and how he wants us to behave before him. So the Bible shows us who God is, and then in light of who he is, how are we to behave? So belief and behavior. And again, we discussed how important it is that we don't flip those, that order. Because so many, in fact, every other religion in the world wants to say you have to, you have to behave a certain way in order to have certain belief. But that's not the way God has designed things. We have to believe who God is, and then that transforms us and takes us to the point where we act in light of that. And of course, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God, keep His commandments. Belief, obedience, belief, behavior. And this is, the, this is what? The whole duty of man. This is what we've been created to do. This is what we're here for, to fear God and to keep His commandments. Now, the question we're faced with this evening is, okay, so we, have, we, we say that the Bible can't contain any errors. We believe that it is that which places us or shows us how we are to believe and to behave. But can we really be sure that God's word is still good and true? And then here's the point of application today. I mean, maybe the word of God was given for people at that day and age. I mean, let's be honest. You know, they didn't have the things that we have today. There was no internet when the Bible was written. Um, they, in fact, the, the known world at that time really just sort of focused upon, um, you know, the, the Middle East and then the, Grecian, uh, the Greek Empire, which became the Roman Empire. Um, they didn't know anything about South America or Native Americans from that perspective. Um, there, there was a limitation in their understanding of how the universe worked. They didn't have the opportunity to send, you know, satellites into outer space to learn all these different things. So, so maybe, maybe the Bible is just a reflection of truth in that particular cultural and time context, but we really can't depend on it today. Can we be sure that God's Word is still good and true today? And the answer is yes. All right, that's it. We're done. We'll see it now. <laughs> yes. Now, here's, here's the point that we're going to look at. God has preserved His Word to be good and true forever. And then here's what's important. It never changes. The veracity and truthfulness of God's Word is something that continues not just back thousands of years ago when the Bible was written, but it persists until today. Now, we're going to look at this in two different realms. We're going, to, we're going to look at preservation of God's Word, how God has ensured that His Word is available to us today. We're going to spend some time looking at that. And then we're going to talk about 
I think the, the more important aspect is that the reality that God's word is timelessly true, that his words persist as truth even in today's world. The passage that they have here that the kids are learning today is Matthew chapter 5, 18. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, or uh, maybe you've heard this, this, uh, this said, not a jot or not a tittle will pass from the law until all is, and then here's the point, accomplished. Now, I do want to sort of give a caveat here about this. This is the passage that the curriculum has chosen, and I don't know that this is necessarily the best passage to discuss the concept of preservation. It is a great passage, but I think for a different reason. It actually points to the necessity for the law to be fulfilled completely. Now, it implies preservation, because how are we to know if the law is, is fulfilled unless we know what the law is? All right, so, so there is an implication here that preservation is in mind. But really, what Jesus is saying here is, is I think, is extremely important in how we understand how redemption works. Matthew chapter 5 is in the book of Matthew, obviously, um, and it's in the fifth chapter. And the fifth chapter is the beginning of, does anyone know what section of Scripture that is? Huh? Yeah, you're not allowed to answer. So chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, they, they form a literary whole. Hmm? The Sermon on the Mount, all right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing what it means to be a, a kingdom citizen. And so what he's making this point here is he's saying, look, if you want to be a kingdom citizen, you have to accomplish the law. You have to keep the law. Um, that the law, a kingdom person, the law must be fulfilled in its entirety. And that's why he speaks of the, the iota and the dot or the, the jot and the tittle. The, the smallest minute aspect of the law must be fulfilled. In fact, all of heaven and earth will pass away, but the law must be accomplished. That it, it is, if you want to talk about what the most important reality for a kingdom person is, it's that the law has been fulfilled. And then what Jesus does after this is he begins to what we call intensify the law. You have heard it said. And, and he discusses different things that are talking and focusing on outward conformity to the law, making sure you do what the law says, but allowing you room so that your heart is not truly conformed to the law. And what Jesus says is, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, and he gets to the heart of the matter. And he shows us that fulfillment of the law is not just about externals. In fact, if you could, which this is impossible, but if you could keep externally every point of the law, you still haven't fulfilled it. Fulfillment of the law requires inward conformity. And he intensifies that in his word. So it, it, it ends, chapter 5 ends with this statement. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect now this is meant to lead us in one sense to a sense of desperation and hopelessness because is anyone here going to stand up and say i can do that no can anyone here be perfect in the, of themselves no it is impossible 
for us to fulfill the law to this degree. And yet Jesus is here in Matthew chapter 5 saying, look, heaven and earth will pass away, but this requirement of a kingdom person will not. All the law must be fulfilled. See, the reality is, is that you must be perfect as who is perfect? Your heavenly Father, your Father in heaven. The reality is, is that there's really only one person who can fulfill the law perfectly, and that is God himself. Like we talked about how we have to recognize that the law exists as a reflection of God's character, of God's nature, of who he is. And when we look at the law, it reveals to us that we fall short of that character, of his glory. So it is, in one sense, meant to lead us to desperation, but then in the other sense, Jesus is preaching here on the Sermon on the Mount to call people to not trust in themselves, but to trust in who? To trust in Him. And praise be to God that Christ perfectly fulfills the law for us. His righteousness is the righteousness of God. He does meet the mark. And so... There's a wonderful hope that, yes, the law will be accomplished. The law has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. So trust in Him. Turn to Him. Depend upon Him. That is the great hope of this passage, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law on our behalf. So, all that to say, this passage I don't think is primarily about preservation. But it implies it. Because how am I to know that Christ kept the law if I don't know what the law is? Um, so let's talk then about this idea of preservation. And we're going to look at it, as I mentioned, in two different veins. We're going to look at how God, how God preserved or, or allowed it so that his word would persist and be available to us today. And then we're going to talk about the, the implication of what that means for truth. And that's where I actually want to start at the very beginning here, is talking about this idea of truth. Um, now, I'm sure many of you are familiar with Indiana Jones, all right? Indiana Jones and, and all his crusades going and doing all these different types of things. And I remember uh, seeing in one of the movies, there was a quote from Indiana Jones as he's beginning, the movie's beginning or whatever, and he, he makes this statement as he's, he's talking with his, with his class and, and his college students, and he's describing archaeology for them. And he makes this statement. He says, Archaeology is the search for fact, not truth. If it's truth you're interested in, Dr. Tyree's philosophy class is right down the hall. So, one thing to keep in mind, whenever you're watching anything, any type of entertainment or anything like that, it is always preaching at you. There's no such thing as a, as a neutral entertainment source. There's always a worldview behind that. And so here we actually see that worldview coming out in this book. This idea that, well, somehow fact is separate from truth, and that truth is a, about the realm of philosophy. And the, the concept here is facts are solid, they're unchanging, but truth is malleable. That's the implication here that we say we have to go to a philosophy class. Um, so here's my question. Is truth 
a malleable concept that should be left to the realm of some philosophy. Is, is truth something that changes? No. Truth is not something that changes. And so what's important is the existence and subsequent preservation of truth is a vital concept that, let's be honest, everyone has an opinion on. Everyone has an opinion on truth. The question that we must face is one opinion more valid or correct than another. Now, society today wants us to affirm multiple sources of truth as being all subjectively valid. And so from their perspective, the answer would be, well, yes, truth is malleable. Truth changes. Your truth may be different than his truth. And in fact, there's even a, a mantra that's set out there today, today, live your truth, as though truth can be changed or different based on a person and their um, particular situation. But here's the thing. There is another opinion, if we're talking about it from a philosophical standpoint, that actually stands the test of time. For the believer, where do we find truth? In the Scriptures, in God's Word. And if the Scriptures are the only objectively valid source of truth. Now here's, here's where preservation is going to become important. If the Scriptures are the only valid objectively uh, the only objectively valid source of truth then and it's provided by god then for mankind to know truth what must god do he must preserve it it must endure it must persist for us to find or to have truth and so that's going to be our discussion today how has god preserved it so that it's available and then how do we respond to people who would say, well, the truth of God's word needs to be updated or changed or malleable. So let's talk about, first of all, how he has ensured that it persists to today. In God's wisdom, he transmitted the true revelation of himself in what form? Written form. Now, this is important. Written, the written form of preservation is necessary. And it was not preserved for us in oral tradition. Now, we actually see this in Luke chapter 1. Luke speaks of how there were actually traditions or, and perhaps oral traditions that went in to understanding or the, the truth about who Jesus was. And so look at what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So what he's saying is the eyewitnesses and ministers, they delivered the truth about Jesus to the church in the first century. And how did they do this? Well, they did this through ministering in the word, which is primarily referring to the public proclamation of the word. And so you would have Paul who would come to Corinth. And he would tell them about Jesus. You would have Peter who would be in Jerusalem and he would tell them about Jesus. He, there would be actual discussions and, and this would happen in, a, in, a, you know, in an auditorium or in someone's house and there would be an oral discussion of that truth. But notice what Luke says. He says, it seemed good to me also. Now, that seeming good to him, 
Who is it that's prompting him to do that? The Holy Spirit. So even though Luke is saying it seemed good to me, the real reason that it seemed good to him is because it seemed good to who? To God. It seemed good to him, or to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. And then what was it that the Spirit was moving in him to do? To write. And particularly to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So he decided to write for what purpose? So that you may have what? Certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. It's amazing how God has chosen written revelation so that it can provide certainty. Um, There are other religions who do not have written texts. Uh, We see this in certain Eastern religions and Asian religions. Particularly, we see it among Native American religions and Aboriginal tribes and religions. They rely on story and spoken word to pass down their religious truth. So you'll, you'll often hear about Native American tribes. They will come together and the elders will speak or tell, tell of the story of their tribe. And that's how the truth of their religion is transmitted through oral uh, speaking. There is no written word. In fact, to, in, to, in some places, if it was written down, that would actually destroy or ruin the usefulness of that story that was written. Um, now, why is this unreliable? Why, why is it problematic to only be dependent upon oral tradition? So it relies completely on humanity, all right? Not, and not just humanity at one point. Like, not that you could say, oh, well, well maybe God supernaturally superintended it at this point, but it rec- relies on it for generations, all right? And it relies on the substance of, of that message, upon humanity for generations. So that's one issue. Can anyone else think of another one? You ever, you ever told a, f- a, a, a whopper of a story? You know, you, you told a, a fishtail? You ever first fishtail? You know, oh, you know, I, 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 I hooked this bass, and the first time you tell it, you know, it was this big. And then you go, you talk to somebody else, it was this big. And then you're like, oh, it was this big. You know, it, it, and we have a tendency to embellish. We have a tendency to exaggerate. We have a tendency to add our own, um, our own personality into these stories. And so that's what ends up happening and suffering for oral tradition is it can be manipulated. It can be changed over time. But if something is written, I can go back and look to see what was written. And in particular, I can look back and see, well, if, if God said something... He said that something was going to happen, then he's putting himself on the line because I'll be able to go back and see if what he said would happen actually happened. It allows an element of verification for that. So in God's wisdom, he transmitted the true revelation of himself in written form. And we see that through the apostles. We see that through what Luke was doing, writing, so that there can be certainty in the truth of God's word. Now, the reality is we do not have those original writings available to us, but God, in His providence, in His wisdom, preserved the written form for us in thousands of copies available today. 
And I'm not going to belabor points that I've discussed elsewhere, but I just want to point out how striking it is that God has done this. Right, I'm going to put a graph up that shows manuscripts that we have available from ancient, from ancient sources. So we're going to be talking about people like Homer and Plato, Caesar, Tacitus, uh, Pliny the Younger, um, and some other names I can't pronounce. All right? So these are, these are considered influential works. All right? So let's look at Homer, the Iliad. All right? 643 copies exist today. That's great. Uh, but we have a time gap of 400 years between, the, between when he wrote and between when we actually have copies. Um, you know, Plato, all right? Everyone's heard of Plato, right? And we're not talking about the, the, the dough that people play with and smells so good and everything. Right? We're talking about Plato, not Play-Doh. Plato, all right? Very influential philosopher. We have seven manuscripts in the original languages, and they are, look at how far away they are from when he actually wrote. 1,300, over a, th- over a thousand years since. I mean, you can go through there and look at it. And then look at the New Testament. How many copies do we have? 5,000 copies. And this is actually old data. We actually have found, I think, another fifteen or 1,600 more manuscripts what this shows us is, has God preserved His Word? Yes, it's available for us to look at and to see today. And this preserved Word endures throughout all ages. And this is where we move now from not just having the availability of God's Word, but understanding the veracity and the enduring truthfulness of God's Word. God's Word endures throughout all ages. Its truth is timeless, which means that it is constantly applicable, no matter whether you're living in 756, 1056, 1756, 1956, or 2056. The truth that's found in God's Word is truth today, just as it was when it was first written. We see this in Psalm 119. How long is God's word firmly fixed in the heavens? How long? Forever. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to how many generations? All generations. You have established the earth, and it stands fast. God's word is enduring. And it's important to again note how the psalmist connects the fixed and unchanging truthfulness of God's word to his character of faithfulness. He is faithful to how many generations? All generations. So for God's word to fail to be true would mean then that God himself is no longer faithful. That is how serious God is about his word. And then he uses an illustration to describe that. It's evidenced by God's establishment of the earth. God established the earth and it stands fast. You know, um, it's just interesting to see how God has faithfully superintended this earth for thousands of years. And it continues today to work as it was to, to function the way that He created it to function. The sun rising, the moon setting. That hasn't stopped for thousands 
of years. You know, if, if you were driving by the, the highway, driving by, you know, the roadside, and, and you, you, you know, you ever see these, like, places that are making swing sets and, uh, and barns and stuff like that, you see those every now and then. So if you drove by one, and their swing sets and their barns were barely holding together, they had holes in them, they were sort of dilapidated and falling apart, would you stop there and get something from them? No, because their work speaks for their skill. But if you drove by one and the barn seemed like, you know, it's, it's raining and hailing and wind, and they're just standing there like it's no big deal, you would have a lot more confidence in that person's work. Well, how can we have confidence in the Word of God? Well, one of the reasons is we look at His work in the earth. Are you breathing right now? That's an evidence that God is faithful to His promises. Did the sun come up this morning? It's an evidence that God has established the earth and it stands fast. So His Word, which is true, is established and will stand fast. But here's the problem. Who, do we, who gets in the way of our recognizing that? Ourselves. Our own flesh. So what does God say about us as mankind? Notice what he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. A voice is saying to Elijah, or I'm sorry, to Isaiah, cry. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All right, here's your message, Isaiah. I want you to go out into the highways and the hedges, and I want you to tell everybody that they are like what? Grass. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. All right, the grass, what happens to the grass? It withers. We saw that recently, all right? My, my grass, my yard is still crunchy from not having a lot of rain, particularly in my backyard because that's where the sun just bakes it all day. It's withered. The flower fades, right? My, my wife has planted these uh, um, uh, flowers, and I, I can't think of what they are now. They're flowers of some sort. And it seems like every time when it comes time for them to bloom, She's either away or we miss it, and we come back, and there's these ugly little, little things sticking up where the flower petals used to be, but the flowers are gone. And so, um, so what happens to flowers? Even though they may be beautiful, they eventually fade. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but here's the thing. What endures or stands forever? The Word of our God. This is an extremely important passage for the day and age in which we live in. Really, all days and ages throughout human history. Because human history is the record of the exaltation of man over against exalting God. We see this particularly evidence in the way that truth is constantly being altered by humanity. But man's flesh or fleshy or man-centered ways, those ways of the world, they do not endure. And you can see this happening in the way that there's constantly shifting rules of what's right and what's wrong in the world in which we live in today. The truth of this world is as transient as the grass and flowers of the field. All God needs to do is breathe on it, and what happens? Gone. But that which God breathed out, which is His Word, it stands how long? Forever. 
So, recognizing that truth, I just want us to quickly look at three modern challenges that we see to the truth of God's Word, to this idea that God's Word endures. What is, what is the world saying today to say, well, obviously God's Word isn't true. Obviously it needs to be updated. What is the world saying today? So the first thing we see is that there are scientific challenges to the truthfulness of God's Word. You know, you, you have things that are being said about what science reveals about what God's Word says, and they say, well, it can't be true. Well, here's the thing to note about this. These challenges generally issue from two suppositions or presuppositions. The first is that our observations of things now are how they have always been. So essentially, we observe a, a natural occurrence today, and we assume that that natural occurrence has occurred that way since all time. All right? That is a huge assumption. All right? And he, here's the thing. We do know that one big thing has changed how things work in our nature, in the world, right? What is it? The, well, the flood, and, but even before the flood, the fall. So there have been changes to the natural order that have affected, that likely have affected um, that our, our assumption that everything is continuing the same way as it has. And in fact, the scriptures talk about that because there are people who will come to you and they'll say, well, where's the hope of his coming? Jesus hasn't come back. And then they'll say, because all things are continuing as they have always been. And the point that's brought out there is, well, things actually do and have changed. And he points to the flood as an indication of that. And the other thing is that there's also a supposition that denies the metaphysical or supernatural. All right? Science essentially says, well, I can only deal with what my hands can touch and handle and what I can observe. So I can't leave any room for supernatural or metaphysical things. And so what do we have to have to respond to that? Well, we need to call them on those suppositions and then just say God's Word recognizes that a fundamental change in and degradation of creation, so that happened, the fall happened, things changed after the fall. And then the Bible also points to clearly supernatural acts done in the universe. And here's the thing. Is God physical or metaphysical? Everyone's like, well, what, what? So physical means does God have substance, and metaphysical means he exists outside of substance. So does God have physical substance? God is a spirit, so that means he is metaphysical. He does not have physical substance. So God himself exists outside of, of, um, of matter, if you will. Um, that doesn't mean that he can't impact the world, and he does in many places. But if we're going to deny the metaphysical, then we have to deny the existence of God himself. So that would be uh, one response. Secondly, the moral challenges. Well, the written scriptures and their accompanying interpretations, which is an entirely different discussion we don't have time for tonight, they represent ancient man's antiquated understanding of the world and humanity, and they produce a hopelessly flawed moral compass. So some arguments that you'll hear people say today, well, Paul hated women. You ever heard anyone say that? It's, it, Paul hated women. Um, 
that, that they didn't have the advancements in human psychology that we have today. Uh, there was no place in their world for loving, committed, same-sex relationships. And they didn't understand the complexities facing transgendered individuals. And, and sometimes they'll come at this and they'll be very, very vicious in their criticism. And other times they'll just say, well, they're just products of their, of their day and age. So, of course, they're going to reflect these things that we know today are wrong. Like, that's sort of what has happened and, and what, what the, the argument that we hear sort of put out there today. Now, here's the thing. This would hold water if the scriptures were the product of men. But what, what does Peter tell us? How, man, how much prophecy comes through man's will? None. The scriptures are written by God through man and reflect God's perfect truth and revelation to mankind. That would be our response. Look, I'm not saying, you know, let's, let's just assume that Paul did hate women, which he didn't. But that's not what's reflected in Scripture. Um, so we have, to, we have to keep that in mind. And then finally, there are substantive challenges or substance challenges to um, the Scriptures. Well, the Bible is just a collection of books, and those books have been revised and adjusted over thousands of years, both through copying and through translations. And you know what? We are even at a point today where we cannot be certain of what the authors themselves actually Said This is a more um, insidious and academic objection, but it's also one that tends to seem very appealing to Christians because they're like, well, yeah, maybe that is true. Maybe this is the, the place. And this is the, particularly the contention of cult groups, of cults and groups attacking scriptures like agnostics, atheists, and the like. Now, what I would suggest to you and why I'm bringing this up I don't think it's helpful to engage them on that level of, of discussion. You're not going to convince Bart Ehrman that he's wrong about his view of how the Scriptures developed. My suggestion would be instead continue to point them to what Scripture actually says. Said, okay, well, maybe we, can just, maybe we can just put that aside for a second. Let's just look at what the Bible actually says. And there's power in the Word of God, isn't there? The Word of God can open eyes and take away blinders. Now, now to, to say that, I, I would say for our own confidence, that we can have more confidence in the possession of the original content of Scripture, both the Old and the New Testament, than any other ancient written document. That, that this, this, is, this, is the, this is, these are the facts, just the facts, man. What was that, Joe Friday that said that or whatever? These are the facts. Um, the reality is, is that there is hardly any evidence of intentional manipulation of the books of Scripture, and where we, intentional manipulation did occur, it is evident that the manipulation has occurred. We can have confidence that the Word of God that we have in our Bibles is indeed what was written by the apostles and prophets under the guidance of Scripture. So these are, th so these are three things that are typically very popular today that attack the veracity and truthfulness of God's Word. And again, my suggestion is not to argue with people on these points, but to point them to what God's Word actually says and let the Spirit do the work. Very quickly, I just want to point out two confessions or catechisms that talk about this. So the Westminster Confession of Faith says this. 
um, it's a lot, so I'm going to read through it quickly. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which it, at the time of its writing was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by His singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto what? Them, the Scriptures. But because these original tongues are not known to all the people of God, who have right unto an interest in the Scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be what? Translated. So you don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to be able to receive the truth of God's Word. Translated into the vulgar language of every nation into which they come, that the Word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship Him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the Scriptures may have hope. And then the uh, modern catechism, this is what the New City Catechism says, how is the Word of God to be read and heard? And this is what's important. If, if it is the true source of truth for us today, it is the objective, verifiable, val- only valid source of truth, then what should we do with it? Well, we should with diligence, preparation, and prayer. So we should read it with diligence, preparation, and prayer so that we can accept it with faith, store it in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. So, the Bible is proven to be God's Word, true and useful for us today and for all ages. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this clearly objective source of truth. Father, we know that there are many voices many things clamoring to say that it is truth. But Father, your word is the only thing that is truth. Lord, may we, by your spirit, through the enablement of your grace, turn aside from these other voices and depend and rest upon the truth of your word. Father, take your word tonight. Apply it to our hearts and lives. May we leave this place confident in the veracity of your word. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.